0: Welcome to the Thinklings Podcast, a conversation where good thoughts help renew the mind with the Word of God. I'm Charlie Carter, and I'm here with Tim Little and Andy Stearns. Let's jump into the conversation. Welcome to the Thinklings Podcast, a beautiful duet of Dr. Tim Little and Mr. Charlie Carter. Shalom. Shalom Lecha. How are you?
1: I'm doing okay. How are you doing?
0: I'm doing okay. Little, little. Uh, let's paint the picture for our listeners today, Tim. It is... 25th? It is the 25th. I was going to say it's a late Monday night. It's dark outside. We're tired. I almost... I thought about getting coffee before this, just so I had a little bit more pep in my step.
1: Herbal tea, man. It's too late for that.
0: It is too late for coffee.
1: Have a module this week teaching Old Testament seminar. Oh, really? Mhm. How's that going? It's going well. Talk to them about canonicity and the transmission of the Old Testament today. So, some good discussion, good class.
0: What do you think so as you talk about Old Testament canonicity, transmission of the text, it gets into textual criticism. What are some facets of Old Testament textual criticism that People are just not aware of that maybe they should be aware of. Well. And by the way, everyone, this is completely off the cuff. We even, we had like, these are the five things we're going to talk about. This was not on the list. (laughs) This is just throwing random darts at a board.
1: Let me just kind of uh, explain the first day of Old Testament seminar, I walk them through a series of old testament problems and i kind of use the imagery of the wheels on the bus go round and round round and round (laughs) round and round and then it's like oops there went a wheel Uh and uh, we lost one and then it's like oh there goes another wheel and near the end of the discussion we kind of lose a big wheel and i ask the entire class so how many of you knew of this problem and absolutely nobody raised their hand. And there's like 10 to 15 students there, several pastors. So,
0: And what, what is that, big I'm not going
1: to say on the podcast.
0: Okay, you, you'll <laughs> tell me as soon as we're done,
1: though. I don't think so.
0: What? <laughs> uh. Anyway,
1: if you want that information, you can uh, sign up for Old Testament Seminar. It'll be offered around this time next year.
0: Boo. Uh, canonicity
1: in the Old Testament and the textual transmission of the Hebrew Bible. It's a little more complicated than... Um, New Testament studies and what we have for the New Testament. It's a good time. I and didn't answer the question for the students either. I basically just made a big mess and then I gave them a reading assignment and we, re- we revisit it on day two.
0: That right there is in essence what a seminary education is. You have a handful of guys that make a huge mess and then tell you to fix the problems by reading a lot. <laughs> that right there is an MDiv, is what Tim just described. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Hopefully it equips them to not just uh, provide answers for their people, but it's actually intended to strengthen their faith Yes, as well. So um, exposing a problem in the Bible and then, then seeing that there is an answer, um, but, uh, but the whole verb there, seeing that there is an answer, there always reaches a point where you don't know the answer and you're going to just have to accept it by faith.
0: Yeah, and that, that the Bible is not like a science textbook right. where you're going to find the perfect answer to every question. It does foster hope and faith, which do not disappoint. Amen. Uh, anyway, here, other, what a great rabbit, uh, rabbit trail. Boom. This is wonderful. We just be done right there. <laughs> but we have all these other wonderful things to talk about as well. So we have uh, an Andy Stearns quote for you. We have some listener email stuff we're going to look at. Tim's going to talk about a book, and I'll give you a million dollars if you can guess what it's about right now. See, they they all thought it, and then they're going to find out in about 10 minutes. And then we're going to talk about some Old Testament, an Old Testament passage. So, number one on that list, here's our Andy quote of the week. Again, from The Intellectual Life by A.G. Sertayange. And this chapter, he's—I'm still in the organization of life—and he's talking about who you associate with. Hmm. Another way we would, another thing we would call that is your friends. Mm-hmm. And so I'm gonna—I'm gonna just grab a couple of sentences out of a couple of paragraphs. There's a lot he's talking about here that's really good, but I'm just gonna read maybe two or three sentences. This is on page 54 of my copy, and he says. The first association of the intellectual, that which will show him for what he is, apart, of course, from his needs and his human duties, is association with his fellows. And then I'm going to jump to later on. He's he's describing the meeting of these fellows, where they're cooperating together and collaborating to find something. And here's what he concludes the next paragraph with Without pride or the spirit of rivalry, Seeking only truth, the friends thus gathered together would, so to say, multiply one another, and their common soul would reveal a wealth of which no sufficient explanation would appear to be discoverable in any single part. So they discover so much more together than you would have never been able to explain it if one person had been doing it on his own. And they're they're friends together seeking the truth, and they find this. This great wealth, and so. yeah.
1: Sounds like the inklings.
0: Sounds like the thinklings and the
1: thinklings. Uh huh.
0: Um, yeah. So I mean, I obviously read that, made me think of our group meetings, mm-hmm. and uh, made me think of Andy. Mm-hmm. Obviously missed here. So.
1: Mm-hmm. And uh, listener, Andy did uh, release a blog article, and I can't even remember his blog, but anyway, you can go to his social media. And, uh, if you haven't read that, I would encourage you to check it out and, and he kind of shares some thoughts, uh, through his blog. I think he sent, posted that on like Saturday or something. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: Maybe we'll reach out and talk to Sid and talk to Andy. Maybe we'll share that on sure. our Thinklings page as well, mm-hmm. uh, later in the week. So you can find that, but it is worth your, worth the read. And, uh, Andy, we're thinking of you and praying for you mm-hmm. and, uh, wish that, now that you're not here, Tim only eye rolls at me. <laughs> and so it's I'm getting all the eye rolls directed right at me.
1: There's actually not as many eye rolls because oh. you and Andy often are feeding off of one another. And well, then I'm just kind of sitting over here in the corner.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I think it is Lewis, you know, it each is. friend brings out another part of the friends. This is true. And so you you actually don't get more of your friend when you isolate them. You get less of them. Correct. And so Uh, You want, you want to have a nice big group and that uh, lets everyone blossom together. Mm -hmm, Anyway, so there's the quote of the week there. And then what was number two?
1: Was the uh, listener that wrote in. Yes.
0: Thank you. You know, we make a list, but we don't always check it twice. Um, Naughty. Anyway. So this is from Daniel, uh, Steve's pastor at. Litchfield First Baptist Church, and if I'm correct, I think I met Daniel at a camp in Canada, and uh, you can email in, Dan, if that is correct, but that's what my mind is telling me at Windcrest, but I'm not 100% sure. He wrote in, and this is from a while ago, but it's within the calendar year, so we're doing okay, and he had been reading a book on the extent of the atonement, And gave a great review for Perspectives on the Extent of the Atonement. Three views by uh, John Hammett, Grant Osborne, and Carl Truman. So I don't know who John Hammett is, but I have read things by Osborne and Truman. So I'm sure that's a a good resource there. And uh, edited by Nacelli. That's another famous name. And Mark Snowberger. So there's a lot of good dudes on that. Mm -hmm. Uh, He gave it a six. So recommend... Uh, that book to you through Daniel. And so thank you, Dan, for that. And he had a question at the end of his email that Tim and I want to talk about. He said, I have a question to propose about a potential topic for an episode or maybe the beginning of an episode. How does a church create an atmosphere that celebrates genuine fruit without creating a culture of conformity? In my particular case, how would I celebrate the fruit of teens and young adults that I'm pastoring without unintentionally encouraging others to mere external conformity? Tim, what thoughts do you have? It's a
1: really good question. The uh, idea of of uh, celebrating somebody else's spiritual maturity I believe is kind of a a biblical idea. You do have Paul, and he does say, imitate me as I imitate Christ. In the Old Testament, you have individuals that become proverbs. They become examples to either avoid or to uh, follow. So if an individual is um, moving in the right direction— Then, I mean, my wife and I, I don't know about publicly, but at least privately, as a instrument of instruction to our children, it's like, do you notice how so-and-so was in going through a trial and um, how have they responded to that trial? And so what we're trying to evoke is how the heart is being played out in a person's life. Uh, So that could be a positive or a negative, whether they're following the Holy Spirit or they're following their own flesh. Um so so uh, there is a, a principle of of uh, of people being examples to others. And even if we say well they're not we don't want them to be examples people are examples to others. Uh some people kind of lead the pack so to speak and they're providing and setting a trajectory for others. Uh you can say you're not a leader but some people just are. Um anyway, so those are kind of some initial thoughts. What do you think?
0: Yeah, and I would agree with everything you said there. And what came to mind as you were describing that there, and uh, maybe how you celebrate I think is important, I think in the context of a family is a unique thing, and what came to mind was a few years ago there was a young man that had graduated from faith, and I had watched him very, I would say very genuinely develop and grow in his awareness of his own spiritual life. And then, as his, his own personal sanctification was jump-started, how he became a, a much uh, improved influence on others, and a, a discipler and an influence in the dorms. And then here we are at his graduation, and here's his mom and dad. And I remember that little conversation there with he, his mom, and his dad. And you know, this is someone that you'd spend a lot of time with, and you'd watch him grow for two or three years. And what do you say in that moment? I think that would be, especially with teens, I think that would be the arena that I would want to celebrate how God is working in their life in the context of their home. And specifically to go to the parents, however, you know, at fault or of influence the parents are, You know, maybe they're like, it could be very possible that they're a negative influence on their kid's growth. Who knows? But I just, I remember, you know, sharing with the mom and the dad, you know, I remember when he first got here and I remember watching this and this, and now to see the way that he's, he's leading and growing is just, and being very genuine, I'm not lying. Just like, this is what God has done in your son's life. Mm -hmm. Um, That was a precious moment. Mm-hmm. And I could see that as a great way to celebrate how God is working, but then not to uh, not to put that before a larger group, in a sense. Um, but as Tim and I deliberated with this off mic, we also came to the conclusion that <laughs> you Pe- can try your best to avoid external conformity, but...
1: We're people. <laughs>
0: yep. <laughs>
1: and some people are just going to follow a pattern of external conformity even though you're trying to encourage them to look at the inward renewal because they're sinners and what do they want they want the praise they want the praise yeah Yeah. and so you there's not really any way to mitigate against it it's just going to probably happen sometimes but i wouldn't i wouldn't see that 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 fault that error as being your own paul even says imitate me as i imitate christ Mm -hmm. and that had to do with external conformity but that was based upon an internal transformed heart. Yep. And so that somebody's just doing the external part, you know, it doesn't mean that that, that puts him to fault.
0: I think that is just, um, you know, I know a guy who's writing a book about some of this stuff.
1: You're funny. And. How's that going?
0: (laughs) Slow and steady, (laughs) just like our progressive sanctification. And. It's interesting what you deem as successful discipleship, or what, what you think of when you think of a, of a thriving, mature Christian is what becomes the standard of your, uh, you know, your success. And so if you were to say, well, I think that a mature Christian reads their Bible every day, and they go to church every Sunday, and they never look at pornography, and they share the gospel all the time, when you start discipling someone, what are you going to look for? To know if you're being successful. Well, Johnny has gone to church every Sunday. To best of my knowledge, he's not looking at pornography. He's sharing the gospel and he's reading his Bible. We're batting a thousand. And not that any of those things are wrong. I would expect all of those fruits to be in the active and visible in the life of someone who's genuinely walking with the Lord. I mean, that, that's, that's an, that's, you know, Pun intended, low hanging fruit. Okay. But uh, at what point does our standard of success include the affections and how do you properly emphasize those as what precedes external obedience? And I think that's the difficulty is you're, you're really, you are working with intangible markers of success. And, uh, so people don't usually like to celebrate intangible things, you know, like to celebrate visible things. Right. And so I think you, Dan, what you're highlighting is a, as a difficult thing, how to strike that balance. Uh, the nice thing is, is that we're not in control of it. You know, you can't even, even if we were perfect disciples, we still couldn't manufacture the growth that the spirit will do through the word in someone's life. So, but anyway, um, any other thoughts there before we move on?
1: No, oh, I think I'm good.
0: All right. Well, we now have that thing that we always do.
1: Books and business.
0: Tim is going to talk about a book and I, you know, told you I'd give you a million dollars if you could guess what we're going to talk about. What are we going to talk about?
1: I have Chasing Love by Sean McDonald McDowell here. Uh, so this weekend, I, I kind of had a busy week last week, and I knew I had a busy week this week with the module, so Saturday I kind of took a down day, and I did some reading. I read um, God, Sex, in Your Marriage by Dr. Julie Slattery, and then this one, uh, Chasing Love by Sean McDowell, uh, and then I got a little bit more into Five Lies of Our Anti-Christian Age by uh, Butterfield today. So um, anyway, I thought I'd just share about this book. This is not a hard book. It's short. There are not that many pages. It's an easy read. It is really written. Uh, what shall we say from a very nice perspective? I don't know if that's. It's two hundred pages, uh, but I don't know. The pages just kind of go by really very very quickly. Um, the book is organized uh, by three different parts. Uh, the first part is basically just uh, a, a, the general bible theology of love and relationships basically saying you know what it's not love is not the most uh, uh, romantic love is not the most important part of the christian life okay your relationship with god is the most important part of the christian life which this is a regular thing that's discussed in these marriage in these love books it's it's good and that's kind of how i would summarize this book as a whole it's just kind of good it doesn't it doesn't, it doesn't pop. It doesn't, you know, say anything that's like, oh, that's a neat, interesting twist or whatever. And honestly, it doesn't have a lot of uh, bite to it either. And uh, what do you mean by bite? Well, um, for example, he does have a chapter on transgender at the end and uh he has uh some of the questions he has these questions he enters in he inserts every once in a while and he just kind of explains the the christian answer there's rarely i mean he'll have scripture passages in the book but there's rarely a lot of scripture that he refers to he's just like hey you know what transgender surgery is wrong okay so his question is is it okay for a christian to pursue transgender surgery And then he has a little paragraph saying, Scripture says God designed people as male and female. Biological sex is thus essential to being human. Scripture also says humans have been made as body and soul, and that our bodies are part of God's good creation. Since our bodies are part of the identity God has assigned us, we are called to express our gender in a way that matches who we are. Is that correct? Yes. yes, it is. It's correct, okay? And that's one of the things that I would just I'd explain this book. It, it, it deals with a lot of the issues. It gives good, accurate answers, but without a whole lot of punch. Um, and then he talks about, additionally, there's a lack of convincing scientific evidence that sex transition surgery helps patients. Therefore, it's not okay to, for a Christian to pursue gender reassignment surgery. Okay, so uh, Chasing Love by Sean McDowell, Sex, Love, and Relationships in a Confused Culture. He'll talk about when do you say I love you, or when, do you, when should you date, and he's like, you shouldn't be dating when you're really young, and, and provides a lot of just good guidance on a lot of that stuff. Then, on the flip side, I just want to kind of contrast a little bit, you have Rosaria Butterfield, Five Lies of Our Anti-Christian Age. Her spirit in this book is very different. I was talking to Charlie about this a little bit. In Rosaria's other books, she's really quite gentle. She's very, um, I think just gentle is the word for it. Encouraging um, people that are wrapped up in the LGBTQ movement to repent of their sin and to submit to the lordship of of uh, jesus mm. well in this book she, that's not her audience her audience in this book is other christians and she's not as gentle uh maybe it'd be a a way to put it so i i've highlighted i I've started working through the introduction and uh she let me see. I'll pick up at the top of page 27. When the evangelical church embraced LGBTQ+ plus vocabulary, the true gospel was changed for a false one. Okay. So the true gospel is exchanged for a false one. So th- she's not pulling any punches. She's basically saying if you are embracing LGBTQ+ plus vocabulary, you're also embracing a false Gospel. Gospel, okay. Uh, ironically, this made the world much less safe for people who experience homosexual desires or gender confusion than it ever was before. And I'm like, huh? The world is less safe. Well, what would it? How would it make the world a less safe place if the church is embracing the LGBTQ uh, worldview? Well, it gives the the people. In the world, no longer have a place to go to get God's truth. Mm. A genuine Christian who experiences the indwelling sin of homosexual desire or transgenderism will find both the world that says, do what feels good, and a church that says, you are a sexual minority and need a voice and platform in the church as equally dangerous. Where is it safe to just repent of sin and be built up in the promises of God? See, there's no place there in the church with a church that embraces this philosophy where where they can be taught, hey, you know, what is a good life for you? If you repent and submit to the Lord. Where is it safe to repent and flee from your sin and no longer be gay or trans? Okay, so she's kind of uh, fighting against uh, a lot of the the influences that have uh come into the church and then in the introduction she addresses the therapist who asks the parents would you rather have a dead daughter or a living son because the uh, let's see here, she talks about how the world offers false beneficence in places in place of real care when it fails to use God's law to apply God's love. This is especially tragic in the context of transgenderism. The world says if your daughter wants to become your son, you must comply, or she will kill herself. Hmm. Her therapist asks, "Would you rather have a dead daughter or a living son?" But this isn't a valid question. Instead, it's a manipulating one. It's also a no-win question. It places the blame for a potential suicide in a caregiver's refusal to believe a lie. Yep. Okay, you can see the clarity which she is addressing this issue. It's impossible to give a good answer to a bad care question, she says. So uh, she then addresses the issue of transgenderism from a very different perspective. And she's saying, listen, this is not a... Gray area for uh, the Christian. In fact, this is something that we're fighting. Now, that's a little different with the audience. I think maybe Sean McDowell is uh, addressing more people who are confused and he's telling them, hey, this isn't the path forward. And so he's being gentle. Rosaria is not being gentle in this book. She's really, uh, she's really blasting the church and saying, hey, this is what's true and this is what's wrong. But I want to read this one section, and then I'm going to let it go. If you are experiencing the desire to be or do something that God hasn't rightfully given you, whether this is coveting your neighbor's wife or your neighbor's gender, you are to cut that desire off. Parenthetical quote, not your own body parts. See, she's being a little bit punchy. The sin of transgenderism, and this is a clarity thing that I appreciated in her book here. The sin of transgenderism is actually the sin of envy. Mm. It's like, I'm not content with the way that God made me. I want this. I want to be that. And I'm envious for it. Envy will eat a person from the inside out. So um, anyway, I thought there was a lot of clarity there because she's actually saying, what is the sin? And this is how the difference between, say, like Sean McDowell's book and Butterfield's book too. Couldn't Sean come out and say, hey, you know what? You're actually struggling with the sin of? Envy. Envy. And what do you need to do? You need to repent. That's exactly right. So that's kind of uh, just a little bit of a snippet. The McDowell book is good, but it doesn't give, uh, I would say, enough um punch. Yeah. Uh, it's just kind of a saying, hey, this is this is the Christian belief. And uh I think Butterfield's actually giving us a little bit more um wisdom on how to help people out of that scenario, saying, hey, you know what? There's a sin issue here. That sin is envy and we want to help you. Okay. So books and business. There you go.
0: Awesome. Uh, that, that, uh, Butterfield book is intriguing me. I'm probably going to have to, uh,
1: yeah, we, um, put
0: that on the list here at some point. I
1: mentioned last week that you could stop in the bookstore and get it for 33% off. And, uh, that mention mention the podcast and pick it up. I know several of you did that. My staff was like, did you say something on the podcast? Yes, I did. And I forgot to tell them. But anyway, they know about it now. And uh, stop in and pick up a a copy of Butterfield. We're really organized. Very organized. This is the
0: most organized podcast in the world.
1: (laughs) Andy, we miss you. We love you, man.
0: (laughs) (laughs) You know, actually, Andy was uh, quite the record keeper for us in more ways than one. And so, yeah. Yeah. All right. So, we're going to have a final meditation in God's word. And a brief explanation here because you're if I didn't explain, you'd be like, well, why in the world are we doing this? So we're gonna be an Amos, which is a minor prophet. and the reason why we're gonna be an Amos is because last week I was meeting with a young man from my church, and we've uh, gotten together for quite a while now, and he's kind of persevered through the vain repetitions of my discipleship curriculum and uh, got to the point now where it's, we're, we're trying to find, uh, well, what are we going to study now? And, uh, so I just threw it out to him. So like, what do you want to study? And he said, let's, let's go to Amos. And to the joy of Dr. Little's heart said, can we translate from the Hebrew? And he has learned Hebrew. So we're like, of course, let's do that. And so that was fun. It was fun for me to you know, remember some things that there was, there was a point where there was a Kamat's Oh. And I was like, you know, I'm pretty sure that's a, you know, Kamat's ha-touf.
1: Wow. You actually taught him something about grammar.
0: Well, then he's like, oh, you're right. That is a closed, unaccented syllable. And I was like, yeah, that. So it's pronounced like an, oh, anyway, uh, I think I, yeah. Anyway, languages are so much fun. Anyway. So that's why we're in Amos. And truth be told, I don't think I've probably ever intentionally looked to Amos uh, other than I preached a a handful of messages probably about 10 years ago. And, uh, you know, so probably horrible. And other than that, it's in survey classes where we're just, you know, reading through as a survey. And so uh, one of the things we're going to start studying through is is Amos and try to draw some some things from it. And so we're going to read here uh, most of chapter one and into chapter two, and then draw a couple of thoughts from it. And we have a resident Old Testament expert to help us. So here is Amos chapter one, and we'll read down through, uh, I can't remember what verse we're going to stop, but we're going to stop into chapter two. And what I want you to think about as we read, or as you read along with me, is just notice the nations that are being Highlighted.
1: Did you but, guys translate that whole section?
0: No, we just picked out one verse to actually read and translate the Hebrew. Mm-hmm. Um, most of it was uh, from the English Standard Version, which is what I'm also reading from. So Amos one one, the words of Amos, who was among the shepherds of Tekoa, which he saw concerning Israel in the days of Uzziah king of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam the son of Joash king of Israel, two years before the earthquake which I think is a lot of very specific historical data for us.
1: Two years before the earthquake.
0: Good to know. Mm -hmm. Verse two, and he said, the Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem. The pastures of the shepherds mourn and the top of Carmel withers. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Damascus and for four, I will not revoke the punishment because they have threshed Gilead and threshing sledges with sl- threshing sledges of iron so I will send a fire upon the house of Hazael and it shall devour the strongholds of Ben-Hadad I will break the gate bar of Damascus and cut off the inhabitants from the valley of Avin and from and him who holds the scepter from Beth Eden and the people of Syria shall go into the exile to Kerr, says the Lord Verse 6, thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Gaza and for four, I will not revoke the punishment, because they carried into exile a whole people to deliver them up to Edom. So I will send a fire upon the wall of Gaza, and it shall devour her strongholds. I will cut off the inhabitants from Ashdod, and him who holds the scepter from Ashkon. I will turn my hand against Ekron, and the remnant of the Philistines shall perish, says the Lord God. Verse 9, Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Tyre, and for four, I will not revoke the punishment, because they delivered up a whole people to Edom, and did not remember the covenant of brotherhood. So I will send a fire upon the wall of Tyre, and it shall devour her strongholds. Verse 11, thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Edom, and for four, I will not revoke the punishment, because he pursued his brother with the sword and cast off all pity, his anger tore perpetually and he kept his wrath forever. This was the verse we translated from Hebrew. Hmm. Uh, 13 and 12, or 11 and 12. So I will send fire upon Timon, and it shall devour the strongholds of Bezra. Bozra. Bozra. Which is what, Tim?
1: Nothing, it's just a location.
0: Look at the front of the word. Oh, that's Bozra. your that's your Kamatshah <laughs> too. Verse 13, thus says the Lord. You're horrendous. <laughs> I know. Anyway, thus says the Lord for three transgressions of the Ammonites and for four, I will not revoke the punishment because they have ripped open pregnant women in Gilead that they might enlarge their border. So I will kindle a fire in the wall of Rabbah and it shall devour her strongholds with shouting on the day of battle with a tempest in the day of the whirlwind and their king shall go into exile. He and his princes together says the Lord. Chapter 2, verse 1. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Moab and for four, I will not revoke the punishment, because he burned to lime the bones of the king of Edom. So I will send a fire upon Moab, and it shall devour the strongholds of Kerioth, and Moab shall die amid uproar, amid shouting and the sound of the trumpet. I will cut off the ruler from its midst and will kill all its princes with him, says the Lord. Chapter 2, verse 4. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Judah, and for four, I will not revoke the punishment because they have rejected the law of the Lord and have not kept his statutes, but their lies have led them astray, those after which their fathers walked. So I will send a fire upon Judah, and it shall devour the strongholds of Jerusalem. Chapter 2, verse 6 Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Israel, and for four, I will not revoke the punishment. Because they sell the righteous for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals, those who trample the head of the poor into the dust of the earth and turn aside the way of the afflicted. A man and his father go into the same girl so that my holy name is profaned. They lay themselves down beside every altar on garments taken in pledge, and in the house of their God, they drink the wine of those who have been fined. And so a lot of verses there a lot of nations there. And so if you'll notice just some casual observations, you start pretty far away from the nation of Israel. You start in Damascus and you progressively by nation get familially closer to Israel and Judah. By the time you get down to, uh, let's see, uh, Edom, which would be the descendants of Esau, correct? And then the Ammonites and the Moabites are descendants of the, son, the children of Lot, mm-hmm. right? So you're getting closer and closer to God's chosen people. And I think Israel and Judah would hear these prophecies, most of them in chapter one, the beginning of chapter two, and they'd be like, yeah, get them. They did do that. <laughs> they did do that to us, Lord. Judge them. And then eventually he circles right on top of Judah and Israel. Who are accountable for following the laws of, of God? They've been committed the oracles of God and they had disobeyed. And God, and you, you can see the poetic repetition for three transgressions and for four, I will not revoke the punishment. And he repeats that every time. And so, uh, how are we gonna how do you even begin to apply this? You know, can you just take some obscure pronouncements against some nations that aren't even really there anymore. How do you start to apply that? Can you apply that? And so, you know, we started talking about this the other day and uh, I think there's some levels of abstraction that you go through here. Uh, obviously, you know, unless, unless there's like a descendant of Edom or Moab listening, you know, maybe this isn't directly for you, but here, here are my two takeaways. And then Tim, I'd love to hear your kind of insight as well. Uh, number one, for all of these nations, you see expressed the Lord's sovereignty, power, and judgment, that he knows their sin, he does not forget their sin, and he will, and this I think would be true for not only the people of God, but all the other peoples, he will eventually judge, he will uh, make right or reckon that sin, and, uh, regardless of how close we think we are, uh, that is true. (laughs) And so for me, I started thinking about how often do I try to bring into my own power, the judgment of God? Like I could look at someone and pronounce judgment upon them for your three transgressions. Yes. Even for four, I deem you to be judged. You know, like I, I I would love to be able to say that of people, And uh, we're reminded in multiple places in scripture that it is the Lord who judges. Vengeance is his. And quite clearly here for multiple nations, he is in perfect control of it in his timing. And so it was a great reminder to me that I'm not the judge. He is the judge and he knows uh, when I'm wronged, when people are wronged. uh, God keeps an absolute perfect record of those things. And then for me how would i apply that truth of god's power and sovereignty and his judgment is that i would trust him i would trust him to make things right and i don't have to take it upon myself to do that and so that, that was kind of my first application there trying how how would i apply amos 1 and 2 to myself is a reminder of the position and the character of god as the as the only true judge of, of the people of the earth. And then the the second was a reminder when you get down to verse four and to verse six, uh, again, I think the people of Israel, the people of Judah as, as split into two nations at this point, they would have pointed the finger at the other nations and would have been ready for their Lord to judge the other people. And they were actively ignoring their own sin. And guess who was not ignoring their sin? The Lord. <laughs> um, you know, Specifically in verse four, I will not revoke the punishment. They have rejected the law of the Lord. They have not kept his statutes. Their lies have led them astray. Goes well with uh, Rosaria Butterfield's uh, title there. Mm-hmm. Uh, Those after which their fathers walked. And not only do I often want to judge others, but I often don't realize how judged I should be. I Mm -hmm. don't see my own sin. And uh, certainly I don't think Judah and Israel did. And as you go farther, and we will eventually, you go farther into the book of Amos, and God is pleading with them, look at all the things I did to try and help you to repent, yet you did not turn back to me. Mm -hmm. And uh, there's Charlie's personal testimony right there, right? Like God is so active each day to help me see when I'm not walking in the spirit. And in those moments, it, it works well because when you're not walking in the spirit, you are controlled by the flesh. And what does the flesh want to do? Judge other people. And so these two things go right in hand with each other. Mm-hmm. The moment you stop recognizing your own sin, you are going to focus on someone else's sin. And uh, so those were. My two takeaways there was, uh, first, there's a demonstration of the, the power, the omniscience, the control, the sovereignty of God as judge, and then there was kind of a sobering reminder there of, you know, as often as you can point the finger at someone else, why don't you just look at yourself for a moment, and, you know, uh, while I don't think it's purely scriptural, John 8 is helpful for us. You who are without sin, throw the first stone. (laughs) And uh, there were no stones thrown in that passage. And so those are my two takeaways, is Mm -hmm. the judgment of God and recognition of your own sin. And uh, any other thoughts there for us, Tim?
1: I think that's a great observation and application. Uh, Israel was likely um, applauding Amos as he... Um, announced these judgments against all of their enemies. Uh, Israel is the seventh and the last nation that is mentioned. And Amos was a prophet to the northern kingdom of Israel, of Israel itself. And And so to think through that they likely would have greeted these condemnations against all of these other nations with applause, um, but not had the, the spiritual discernment to see this sin in their own lives Uh, to then be judged uh, by the Lord, by Amos, in a similar fashion, uh, just illustrates how blinded we can be to our own sin uh, and how judgmental we can be to other people's sin. So I think that's a great application. Instead of seeing and being able to identify the sin in somebody else's life, pray and ask the Lord, Lord, I know I'm not perfect, and I haven't confessed any sin in a very long time. Help me to see the sin that I have been blinded to. That's a dangerous prayer.
0: Yeah. And so hopefully that's an encouragement to you. And uh, we'll, uh, and, and unless the young man that we're meeting with decides that he doesn't want to study Amos anymore, we'll keep going through Amos. And so... Thank you guys for listening to this week's podcast, and we will see you next week on the Thinklings podcast. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Thinklings podcast. We would love to hear from you. If you have any feedback, suggestions, or potential topics that you'd like us to discuss, you can contact us through our email, thinklingspodcast at gmail.com. Remember, don't let this conversation end with this podcast. Read good books, talk about them with your friends, and always continue to cultivate your mind. See you next time on the Thinklings Podcast. The Thinklings want to remind our listeners that the Thinklings Podcast is our personal production. Our conversations, book discussions, and viewpoints may not represent the views of Faith Baptist Bible College and Theological Seminary. Any questions or feedback should be directed to us at the Thinklings Podcast.